The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. In our studies in Luke, we find Jesus in an environment of mounting conflict. In the passage we saw last Sunday in Luke 13, he defined in the midst of that conflict that the way to faith in him was very specific. He called it narrow. It doesn't mean it isn't open to all who will come, but it means you must come by the way that God specifies. And there was controversy He was training his disciples to recognize they would be doing singular things in the midst of a world that wouldn't love them. And now we come to this passage at the end of Luke 13, beginning at verse 31. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. He said to them, go tell that fox Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those that are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is God's own word. In late August, one Friday, my wife and I battled Schuylkill Expressway traffic, something we don't do lightly, but we did it on a vacation day in order to visit the Philadelphia Museum of Art. You may have known they had a special exhibit there for several months, gone now I believe, called Rembrandt and the Face of Jesus. And the traffic and the log jams of the Schuylkill were well worth it to see dozens of original paintings by the great artist Rembrandt van Rijn there at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. Many of these works of art had not left their European museum homes for decades, I understand, and they were on a tour of the United States of several select cities. Now, of course, nobody knows what Jesus looked like, and we also know, of course, that God's commandment forbids us to worship any artistic rendering of him or of God. And we did not go to worship a painting or paintings. But I have long believed that Rembrandt, of all the great artists, possibly did the best job of portraying what Christ might have looked like. His Jesus was not Caucasian, as often is depicted. The painter actually used Palestinian 
Jews as models, which was thought to be quite a a controversial thing in his day. Amazing, Jesus, a Jew. Duh. But they didn't think Rembrandt was doing the right thing when he did that. The face showed a real man, an earthy and serene man, a man that had mystery about him, a man who would surprise you with some things that he did, and the eyes in all those studies of the master were so magnificent and unforgettable. Rembrandt's portrayals of Jesus showed someone who was very much in this world, a real man, and yet definitely not entirely of this world. Well, we've been studying Luke's gospel now for more than a year, and we might think, well, I'm getting to know Jesus pretty well, reviewing this gospel. I, you know, a lot of this is familiar territory. I know what Jesus is like. I know what he does. Doesn't he still surprise you sometimes? He surprises me in this passage. There's a mystery about him and the way he responds to things, particularly to Herod and what happens in this text. You can't put him in a box and say, I know what he's going to do on every occasion because he just will turn around and do something else. It's, as I told you, an occasion of conflict. He's locked into that conflict. He's locked into the purpose that he's going to in Jerusalem. And at the end of chapter 13, he affirms a timetable for his own purpose in life and prophesies with clarity about a coming inevitable crisis that will happen in Jerusalem, a city which he said is one where God's prophets go to die. I have just two points to emphasize from this short text. First, we are taught here something of what it means to live according to God's calling on God's timetable. And secondly, we're reminded of an enormous irony that Jesus went to die in the very same place where once on earth God appointed a city to be his showplace of his glory. That was the city that executed him. First of all, in Luke 13, 31 to 33, Christ was ruled by God's timetable, not man's manipulations. Now, keep your Herods straight. That's a little difficult to do in, in the Bible. There are actually three of them that figure in the Bible. Herod the Great is the one you know the best, probably, who, who is responsible at the time of Jesus' birth for the slaughter of the innocents in Bethlehem. Amazingly arrogant, violent man who died a horrible death when Jesus was a toddler. So that Herod the Great is gone. Herod Antipas is the one we're concerned with here, who was a ruler in the province of Galilee, allowed to be there by Rome, allowed to have a sort of kingdom as long as he didn't get too big for his britches. Rome let him be there and accumulate wealth and basically be hated by most of the people he ruled over. Now, the opening of this passage has something that seems really odd. Pharisees of all people come to Jesus warning him Herod wants to kill you. We think, wait a minute. Why would the wolves warn the lamb that he was in danger? This just seems odd. The commentators have an interesting time trying to explain this, and I don't think we need to spend a lot of time on why it happened. We probably can't be sure. It might have been that the Pharisees were actually in league with Herod somehow, and they were presenting him this warning with the idea that if he did what they said, there would be an ambush as he tried to leave the place. That's a little improbable to me. 
I think the other idea is that the Pharisees disliked Herod more than they were annoyed with Jesus. And they didn't have any problem giving Jesus a warning that would foil a plan of Herod's. Another suggestion is made that not all Pharisees are complete moral degenerates. They're not, and they weren't. And some of these men had compassion and just were saying, Jesus, you you need to be careful. Herod is after you. Well, whatever the reason there, here was Jesus presented with a temptation to save his own life at the expense of sacrificing his entire ministry to save the souls of millions of people by completing his errand all the way to the cross. He wouldn't be manipulated, as you see, by the threats of Herod. Not only would he not be manipulated, but he, he surprises us quite a lot because he sent a contemptuous message to Herod, one that surely he knew would be repeated in Herod's ear. I think he intended it to be repeated to Herod. I think it was a taunt, if you will, as Jesus said, tell that fox this. That doesn't sound like Jesus, does it? It's the most sarcastic and directly critical that he ever was in naming any other person by an uncomplimentary name. Olypes in the Greek, fox, said that a human being was sort of a third-rate person of no significance, a cunning person, a destructive person. When you think of a fox coming into a hen house and, and ravaging the flock, I think he was saying all those things. Herod's not a very important person. He doesn't have to be heeded, and he's a violent man. Go tell that fox what I think of him and that I don't intend to bend myself to his threats. Jesus said the other interesting thing here, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal. Interesting. The theologians ask, was the mention of the third day there somehow a a veiled reference to the resurrection? It could be, but it also was really just a common expression apparently in that day when somebody said, well, I'm I've got a job to do, and it'll take today and tomorrow, and and I'm sure the next day before I get it done. I think it's a combination. I think we could see the resurrection perhaps alluded to, but he's just saying, I'm going to do the task I was called to do, not be swayed by these threats. And his task, of course, was to go to that cross, and any influence that would take him away from that was viewed as trivial and of no importance. You see Jesus throughout his whole life being conscious of this purpose. Remember when he was in the temple as a 12-year-old boy and his mother came and said, son, where have you been? Why did you cause us this difficulty? And he said, mother, don't you understand? I, I must be about my father's business. And that must word kept coming up all through his ministry different times when he said, I must go and be lifted up on the cross. And he talked about my hour, my time. He had this clear sense of I'm following an appointment of God. And as God in flesh, he had some great awareness, even perhaps down to the exact timing of it, of when this thing should happen. I think there's an illustration told from early Protestant church history that happened in England. In the Reformation in England, there was a man named Hugh Latimer, who later was actually martyred for his faith in a spectacular way. 
But before that, Latimer was preaching as a reformer, holding on to the truths of the Bible. One day he was preaching in Westminster Abbey. He was pretty prominent as a preacher, one that people loved to hear. And yet he was known to preach the truths of the Bible straight. Well, on this particular day, the king was in the audience at Westminster Abbey. And Latimer knew it. And of course, he knew then that he was in a situation where he might say things that King would oppose because he was opposed to the reformers. And so he reached a point in his sermon where he entered into what you would properly call a soliloquy. In other words, he was talking to himself in the presence of everyone in the midst of his sermon. And here's what he's recorded to have said. He said, Latimer, talking to himself, be careful. The king is in the audience. But then after a pause in which everybody went, oh, yeah, he is, all right, he said this, Latimer, be more careful than before, for the king of all kings attends here this day. And it was very plain that he was telling the audience which king he intended to please with what he had to say. Now, we don't have the same fullness of understanding that Jesus had. He had a divine understanding of his mission and its timing and and how he should proceed. None of us know that. The greatest Christian alive doesn't necessarily know what's going to happen to him tomorrow. But we do know that we are called as disciples of Christ, that the name of Christ is upon us. We do know, if we belong to him, that we have his Holy Spirit as a new and energetic presence in us, changing us calling us to step apart from the secular society and to march to a totally different drummer. And so we also know somewhat like Jesus that there are times in our lives when we must say to the powers that be in this world, whether they come to us with bold announcements or just with subtle pressures, we say back, you may entice me, you may cajole me, you may threaten me, but I must go with Christ I cannot go with you. I will not be deterred by you. I would challenge young people to a verse in the Old Testament that has challenged me for decades. One fact sticks out to me from the book of Nehemiah about that particular man. Now, maybe you know Nehemiah was the one who went back to Jerusalem. He sensed the Holy Spirit calling him. He got permission to go with some others. Jerusalem had previously been ruined. He had lived in captivity, and he he said, can I go back? I want to explore the fortunes of the city, and and he was allowed to do that by the head ruler of the time. And Nehemiah, you know, came back, and he marshaled people as a good leader, and they started rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem to fortify it, to fulfill the purposes of God, and neighbors didn't like it. You know, Jerusalem had been ruined. It was ineffectual as a government or as a power in the region. A man named Sanballat was among the others who who sent threats and said, Nehemiah, you keep that up, you're going to die. And finally, Sanballat sent a message to Nehemiah and said, look, you're a respected man. Come and meet with me. I'm going to give you an amnesty. I won't kill you. I'll let you go free if you walk away from this project. Young people, I wish you would hear what Nehemiah said. Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 11. His message back to Sanballat was this. Should such a man as I 
run away? That's all he said. He didn't explain what he meant, but we know what he meant. Should a man commissioned by God, led by God, empowered by God to do this task respond to you? You think you're someone important. You are not important. My God is important. I will not run away from the task he has given me to obey you. Young people, that's something you ought to say to yourself on a regular basis at every middle school and high school and college campus and on your first job and your second and third and fourth jobs as well. Should such a man, such a woman as I be intimidated by the pressures of this world? There are a hundred small ways every day that Satan tries to dissuade us from being Christ's man or woman. Tries to bend us, you know, like we were that clay figure, Gumby. You know, Gumby can be pushed into any kind of position or pose you want, and the world thinks maybe the Christians are Gumby, and a lot of Christians are Gumby. But we should be ready to say, I won't. I refuse. I will not be pressed into your mold. I belong to a greater God, and I'm on his errand. Christ was ruled by God's timetable, not the manipulations of men. Well, quickly, the second point is important. And this text takes a complete pivot in verse 34. Suddenly, Jesus is doing something different, but it's related to what has just happened. He's been telling them that he must go to Jerusalem. He must finish his task. And now he breaks out in a prophetic voice, actually speaking as if he were addressing the city of Jerusalem and not just the city, but the whole nation of Israel, because that city represents them. And he cried out, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, city that kills prophets and stones those sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children as a hen gathers her brood. You would not have it. And so your house is forsaken. I was thinking that it was 14 years ago that a group of us took a tour of Bible lands, went to Jerusalem, came back just about 14 years ago last week. My only time to visit that city. What a place it is. What a fascinating place to literally walk where you know Christ walked and many before. But I'll tell you, when you see that city today, and I know many others of you have seen it, it's really like being in a a faded museum of, of old relics. It certainly isn't what it once was. If you want to know what it once was, maybe one of the best moments you could find in the Scripture would be 2 Chronicles 7, when the temple was dedicated under Solomon, when the kingdom was at its height of political glory and riches and everything else, probably at its spiritual height as well. And Solomon gathered everyone. They dedicated the temple. And I, I'm always stunned by the sentence in Second Chronicles 7.1 where it says, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple so the priests could not even enter the place because of the glory filling it. Wow. We've never seen that. Very few people have seen that in the history of the world. Here was the city in which the name of God was set on display for a people chosen to display him if they would obey and worship and honor him. And we know they didn't. And so over a long period of unbelief and erosion of their faith, Jesus was now in the first century crying out and saying, Jerusalem, do you know how I would have 
gathered you. I loved you. And you wouldn't have it. And how, what pathos that cry comes with because we know in one generation, just about exactly 40 years from the time Jesus cried that, the unbelief that had been building and building and building in the nation of Israel came to an enormous crash. Titus, the Roman general, came with his many legions of troops. They surrounded Jerusalem. They starved the city into submission. They starved it so successfully that Josephus, the historian, tells tales which are historic reports as if you're seeing it on the evening news of mothers who ate the flesh of their dead children because there was nothing to eat in Jerusalem. And it's said that the crosses raised up to execute the Jewish leaders were so numerous in the hundreds that they ran out of wood to make crosses to execute all those who died as the Romans took over Jerusalem and tore that temple down stone by stone. Not one stone stands on another since that day. You ought to read Deuteronomy 28. I don't have time to go into it, but it's a wonderful chapter. It's a fearful chapter. As God first tells Israel how they could have had his rich and wonderful blessing, how willing he was to bless them. But if they would not accept his blessing and would not honor him, how his curses would fall on them are told there in Deuteronomy 28. And there were few in old Israel, old Jerusalem, that escaped this grim promise that their Messiah spoke here saying, you will not see me until the day you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now there are some who say, well, that was Palm Sunday, right? Jesus rode into Jerusalem and they said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I don't think so. That was a one-hour thing. We believe Jesus was speaking there about his final coming, his great coming, the judgment coming, when those who would not have him through all of their lifetime reaped the covenant curse on them when it was too late. They would recognize him. Yes, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They couldn't fail to recognize him then when he comes in glory, but they would not be receiving him gladly and by faith, but only by a recognition of terror. Here's the thing. Isn't it an an amazing irony that Jerusalem, the city, once was God's showcase where he said, you want to see my glory? It's there. I I exhibited in that city, as I said, 2 Chronicles 7 and other places. Nobody ever saw the glory of God on earth as Israel did. But now do you see the glory of God on earth was resident not in a building called a temple, not in a city, but in a man. And the man, Jesus, who was exhibit A of the glory of God came to that city that had once been exhibit A and that city killed him as a clear demonstration of how deep the stone-dead unbelief can go in a human life or many human lives. God's son did not miss his plan to die there. It was his plan. He wouldn't be deterred. Judas didn't change it. Herod didn't change it. Pilate didn't change it. He marched according to God's plan. And he came there and demonstrated his marvelous love for his kingdom people, for every man and woman who calls him Lord now. He was God in flesh, 
And he did spread his wings, and he did gather in all of those people who are going to be his. He didn't miss one of them. And they weren't simply the people of Israel. Oh, yes, of course, every Jew who would confess him Lord is included. But so every Gentile who confesses him now is in that flock that he gathers. And the great irony of Scripture is the Jerusalem on earth wouldn't have him. But Revelation 21 says we are gathered by him into the new Jerusalem that is from heaven. That will be our home. And to enter that home, all we need do before he returns is to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What a wonderful Savior this is. Think what he has done for you and for me. Let's pray together. Dear Father, I thank you that your son's errand was not an errand of failure. Our text shows it was one of perfect accomplishment. Those who would not have him did not find him. But still, his invitation to gather us and to take us into that new Jerusalem that is from above stands open. I pray, O God, that we would not be the subjects of his lament in our time, but rather of his rejoicing when we greet him face to face. Amen.